finishing up our series, Stuff Nobody Says. And the idea behind this is we're just looking at, at situations that we get ourselves in as human beings that we never really planned on. That uh, things that, that we don't say we're going to do, and then one day we look up and guess what? We're in the middle of doing it. And uh, trying to look at those things and say, okay, how can we keep those things from happening before they do? Well, this is June, and uh, depending on which website you look at, either June or September is the most popular month to get married. I think it's June based on just personal experience. Uh, I've been in a lot of June weddings. I was in the most important June wedding ever on June 8th, 1991, when I married my wife. Uh, I've, I've, as a pastor, I've officiated in a lot of June weddings, and it just seems like there's a lot of weddings in June. And I was thinking about weddings, and you know, there's all weddings are unique in their own way, and there's a lot of them that are very different uh, from each other. Some I've done outdoor weddings, indoor weddings, I've done big weddings and small weddings, well, big and small as far as the number of people involved. I've also done them big and small as as far as the size of the people involved in those weddings. And um, there's, uh, you know, there's fancy, real fancy weddings where the dad goes into debt and they end up losing their house later on to pay for this wedding. And then there's very informal weddings where people have a little more sense and say, I think we can get married for about 500 bucks. And so there's all different kinds of weddings. But one thing all weddings have in common, every wedding I've ever been to, every wedding I've ever officiated at, every wedding I've ever heard of, all weddings involve the taking of vows at some point in the marriage, in the wedding. That's what seals the wedding. That's what seals these two people together is they take these vows. And, and you're making a vow before God and before your friends and family. And they're, all the vows are always similar. Now, they're, you know, a lot of people like, oh, we want to write our own vows. And they try to make them really unique. And then there's traditional vows that most of you have heard of, you know, about rich or poor, you know, sickness, health, all that kind of stuff. But no matter if you write your own vows or if you use traditional vows, they all basically say the same thing. And the vows basically say this. I believe you're the one God has for me. I love you more than anybody else. And I'm going to stay with you forever, no matter what happens, you and me, till we die. That's it. That's what we're going to do. And that's what the vows are. I've never, ever been to a wedding where vows were spoken like this. I commit my love to you today. I promise in front of God and these friends I will remain faithful to you until you gain 25 extra pounds. At that time, I will have a chance to hook up with the super hot girl at work, and I will do that. Never heard those vows spoken at a wedding. I've never heard these vows spoken at a wedding. I take you to be my wedded husband. I will support you and care for you until you lose your job. Then I will flirt with my boss to get him to leave his wife for me. I've never heard those vows spoken at a wedding. Why? Because on the wedding day, everybody is in love with each other. You believe in true love. Everybody, you, you stand there and, and no one on their wedding day is thinking, I can't wait till I can get a divorce from you. On your wedding day, it's, hey, we love each other. It's going to be you and me till the end. And, and I've never heard someone say, you know, I think we're probably going to stay together for a few years, have some kids, uh, put their needs before our needs, begin to resent each other, and then go through a real bitter divorce. No one does that. Yet, every year in this country, in Greenville County, South Carolina, weddings that, that were wonderful things, they end up leading to two people that walk away from one another. And so every year you find people that on their wedding day, they were so in love 
Now they've walked away from one another and their marriage has fallen apart. And the person that you loved more than anybody on the face of the earth now is the person that you hate more than anybody on the face of the earth. How does that happen? How do we end up in those situations? Well, there's a, there's a passage of Scripture, a story that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read through. I'm just going to read the first five verses today, but I'm going to tell you the whole story. And if you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn to the Old Testament, <clears throat> to the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel. It's conveniently located right behind 1 Samuel. That's how you can find it. Uh, if you need to use your table of contents at the front of your Bible, don't worry about it. Go ahead and do that. Nothing to be ashamed of. If you don't have a Bible, look up on the screen. It's going to be up here. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Now, I told you just a second ago, uh, I'm, I'm going to read the first five verses, talk a little bit about those. I'm going to tell you the rest of the story. But I want to encourage you uh, on your own this afternoon. Um, there's no NFL football on, so you've got no excuse. And I know that some of y'all are NASCAR fans. Listen, that's a bunch of white guys turning left. Take about 25 laps and just turn it off. And read 2 Samuel 11 and 12 today before, before you go to bed tonight. Read these two chapters for yourself. But I'm going to tell you, I'm going to read the first five verses and tell you about what happens in the rest of 2 Samuel 11. This is what it says, 2 Samuel 11, 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. Now let me give you just a brief history of what's going on here. Uh, there's this, this nation called Israel. Uh, it's the nation that had been led by God. Uh, God had led them uh, you know, out of uh, captivity from the Egyptians. It led them through the desert. A guy named Moses was their leader. And, and, uh, and, and the, the, the nation of Israel decided they wanted a king to be like the other countries around them. Because, you know, even back then, people were trying to keep up with folks around them. And so they come to Samuel, who is a, a prophet, and they say, hey, we want a king. And Samuel goes to God, and God says, okay, if that's what they want, I'm going to give them what they want. Even though kings can be bad news, I'm going to give them what they want. I'm going to give them what they've asked for. So they find a man named Saul. Says that he's taller than anybody else in the country. He's extremely good looking. He's a leader. All this kind of stuff. They, God makes him the king of Israel. So Saul is the king of Israel. For a while, things are good. Saul then begins to forget about God and tries to do things his own way. I don't know if anybody else has ever been like that. I know I've done that before. And he tries to do things his own way, not God's way. So God turns his back on Saul as king of Israel. He says he will no longer be the king. And so he sends Samuel to find a young boy by the name of David. David's a part of a big family, got a bunch of older brothers. They don't think much of David. They think he doesn't have a bright future ahead of him. But God looks at David and says, that's the guy who's going to be the king. Why? Because I know that he's got a heart that is a, a wonderful heart, that he loves me. He loves the things that I'm doing. That's what God said. So he sends Samuel to David. David anoints, uh, I mean, Samuel anoints David as the new king, which is anointing is this old weird thing they used to do where they pour oil on 
a guy's head, not like motor oil, but a different kind of oil they poured on his head and say, you're now the king. So now David's supposed to be the king of Israel. Saul, of course, is not happy about this. Saul tries to have David killed. David ends up having to run off. He lives in caves. Uh, he's, he's kind of a wanted man wherever he goes. But during this time, while David's running around living in caves and, and being a wanted man, it, the scripture tells us that all the rejects from Israel, all the people that nobody wanted anything to do with, they go out and they live with David in the caves. And David creates this army of all the losers. He's got this big loser army. But, but God blesses them because they're faithful to what God wants to do. He takes losers and he makes them into great winners in battles. And so David begins to fight these battles. Saul ends up getting killed in a battle, and Saul has this son named Ishbosheth, which, by the way, is a great name. If you're expecting a baby, think consider Ishbosheth for a name. And, and Ishbosheth decides he wants to be king, but guess what? God hasn't chosen him to be king, so he's not going to be able to be king. Ishbosheth is murdered in his sleep by some guys, and so then the nation of Israel comes to, comes to David and they say, We know you're supposed to be our king. You've been living in these caves. We want you to be the king. And so David becomes king of Israel, finally, what God intended for him to do. So now he's king of Israel. He wins a few battles. Things are going great. And that's where it is when we get to verse 1 of 2 Samuel 11. So David now is the king. He can relax. And so maybe that's why in verse 1, when it says in the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David remained in Jerusalem, even though he was the king. Go to verse 2. One evening, David got up from his bed. Now remember, everybody else is at war. He's at home by himself. One evening, David got up from his bed, I guess he didn't take his Ambien that night, and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? I've always thought it's funny that the woman in Scripture who's taken a bath out in public is named Bathsheba. I've always thought that was kind of funny. So David, I don't know what was going on. Evidently, he couldn't sleep. And, and I really believe that David's intentions when he got up out of bed that night was not, he wasn't walking around saying, dude, I hope there's going to be a naked woman out here. I think he just couldn't sleep. And he's up walking around and boom, there she is right in front of him. So at this point, his intentions are good, but his intentions change in verse 3, when it says, he sent someone to find out about her. Does anybody have any idea what David might have in mind? What might David be thinking? Men, what do you think David's thinking? I see some men like, I'm not going to say that in front of my wife. We'll find out in verse 4. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Then she went back home. David such a gracious host. I got a one-night hookup. I'm going to send you home without breakfast. Get out of here now. I've used you, done what I wanted to do with you. Now get out of my face. Verse 5. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. Now, I want to tell you what happens the rest of this story. Um, remember that we said that in, in one of those verses it said that... Um, this lady is named Bathsheba. She's married to a guy named Uriah the Hittite. Well, Uriah happened to be with the, the army that was out fighting. 
David remained in Jerusalem. Uriah went to fight. And so David has an idea. Okay, this woman's, you know, she's pregnant. I'm responsible for this. What am I going to do? You know, so he said, I'm going to go get uh, sin for her husband to come back home. Because this is before DNA testing. So if Uriah comes back home and he and Bathsheba do what a husband and wife are supposed to do when the husband comes back home, then everything will be good. They'll think it's his baby. Everything's good. So he sends for Uriah, tells him to come back home. He's hoping that he's going to go home. They're going to dim the lights, put on some very white, and do what comes natural. But instead, you know what Uriah does? Uriah says to David, listen, David, all of my brothers that I'm in the army with, they're still out fighting. And I'm not going to go home and enjoy my wife and enjoy my own bed and enjoy the food of my home while my friends are out there fighting. So he sleeps out in the yard of the palace. And I think it's such a contrast in this story about how honorable of a man Uriah is and how David's intentions were so dishonorable. And so David thinks, well, this is not good. David has another idea. I know what. I got, I'm the king. I got the best wine in the country. Come on in here with me, Uriah. Drink up. So he gets Uriah drunk. He figures a drunk guy will definitely go home and sleep in his own bed. And then whether he has sex with his wife or not, he's not going to remember it. I can tell him he did. And then we'll tell him that that's his child and everything's good. Even drunk, Uriah says, I'm not going home. I'm going to sleep out here in the yard. So guess what David does next? David says, all right, I'm going to write a letter. I want you to take it back to the army for me. He writes in this letter to Joab, I want you to be sure that Uriah is killed in battle. Puts it in Uriah's hand. Uriah is such a man of honor that he takes the message from the king's hand that's his own death sentence. He doesn't open it up, carries it back to Joab, hands it to Joab. Joab has Uriah killed in battle. Now David is off the hook. He's killed the, the uh, husband of the woman that he slept with. He's going to take her, become his own wife, and he's going to have a baby, and everything's going to be good. Now, if you think that's the way it ends, that's why you need to go home and read chapter 12. Because what he did did not escape God's attention, and God punishes him for that. But anyway, that's, we're not going to go to there today. I just wanted you to know the end of the story. What I want to focus on is how David got himself in this position to begin with. You see, there's, there's, a, there's a, a, a situation here where, where David never intended to be. David, in fact, if you read 2 Samuel and you read the story of David, you read verses, the chapters 1 through 10 before you get to chapter 11, you would never expect, okay, David's going to be the guy who's going to do something really bad. You know, uh, I worked with teenagers for years and, uh, and y'all, some of y'all have been around kids. You ever been around a kid that you saw them when they were like 11 years old, and you're like, that dude's ending up in prison one day. I can tell. You ever been around a kid like that, right? And sometimes they do, and then sometimes they really surprise you, and they turn out to be. Have you ever been around a kid that when they were like 11, you're like, that kid is the greatest kid ever. Nothing's ever going to go wrong. And then one day you find out that they ended up in prison. You're like, what in the world happened? If you read David's story up to chapter 11, you would never think, okay, he's going to be the guy who's going to steal another man's wife, have sex with her, and then have that man murdered. You would never think that. In fact, before you get to chapter 11, the scripture says things about David like this. It says that, that David was a man after God's own heart. You know who said David is a man after God's own heart? God. 
God said, after everybody I look down on, David is the guy who likes the things that I like. He dislikes the things that I like. The things that move my heart move the heart of David. I would love for God to look at me and say that about me. But God looks at David and says that, and that's, that's who David was before chapter 11. Also, it says in the scripture before chapter 11 that David was more powerful than anybody else because the Lord God Almighty was with him. David was winning these battles not because he was the greatest general who ever lived. He was winning battles because wherever David went, the power of God went, went with him. And they were just destroying these other countries that were opposing God's will. Why? Because the power of God was with David. And so all of this stuff, you would never look at David and think, he's going to be the guy that's going to murder somebody. He's going to be the guy who's going to steal somebody else's wife and make her pregnant. But if we look at the life of David and you look at this situation, you find out that this big problem that he found himself in was preceded by a series of smaller decisions. And I think for us, those of, those of you who've been around a while, you've messed something up before. I know I have. And you've found yourself in a bad place, in a position that you never wanted to be in. And if you evaluated how you got there, you would look back and you would say, you know what? It all started back with a little small decision I made five years ago or a little small decision I made three weeks ago. And every big problem that we get ourselves into as humans began with a series of smaller decisions that seemed like they were unrelated to the big problem. And so I want us to look at some of those that happened in David's life. In verse 1, let me read verse 1 to you again. It says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war... David sent Joab out with the king's men. Now let me review. I, I know I just gave you a bunch of information, but let me review. I want you to answer out loud. This is not a trick question, but let's have a little test here. Who is the king of Israel? Let me say it again. Who is the king of Israel? So when this scripture says, in the spring at the time when kings go off to war, who should have gone off to war? Not a trick question. You're right. David. But David decided for whatever reason, like I said earlier, maybe he's thought, I need a break. I've had a rough life. David decided, I'm going to send someone else to do what I'm supposed to do as the king. And I think the first thing that we can learn in this scripture about how we can protect our marriages, but not just your marriage, your job, your friendships, but especially your marriages, is this. Do the things that only you can do. Do the things that only you can do. See, when we look at the story, we would say, man, David's problem started the moment that he had sex with Bathsheba. Or you might say, well, let's back up a little bit. David's problem started the moment he saw Bathsheba naked on the roof. And you might even think, what was she doing out there anyway? Who does she think she is? She can't get a shower curtain at Dollar General? But David's problem began long before he got up and saw a hot woman bathing on the roof. And it began long before he brought her to his house and had sex with her. No, David's problem started the moment that he decided, I'm not going to war this year. I got a good general named Joab. He can handle it. I'm going to send him off instead. See, there, are, there was one thing out of being the king that David should not delegate. 
and that was going off to war. The, it was, the, the king was the one that was supposed to lead the people into battle. And if the king wasn't out front leading the charge, they shouldn't go to war. But David did not do the thing that only he was supposed to do. If you're a married man, only you can be a husband to your wife. If you're a married woman, only you can be a wife to your husband. There's a lot of other things that you can get someone else to do for you. You can get someone else to clean your house. You can get someone else to do part of your job. You can get someone else to cut your grass. You can get someone else to do lots of different things that you have to be responsible for. But you can't get anybody else to be a husband to your wife or a wife to your husband. And God has called us as husband and wives to do the thing that only we can do, and that is be the husband or the wife to our spouses. And David forgot that when it came to leading his army. He decided he could let someone else do that. See, if June 8th, 1991, Sherry and I got married 22 years ago. We just celebrated our 22nd anniversary. Um, there's a lot of different things that I'm responsible for around our house. But if I choose the one thing that, that, that nobody else can do, which is be her husband, if I choose to, to not do that, What's going to happen is somebody else is going to come along and try to do that for me. Someone else is going to see her lonely and they're going to try to give her the emotional connection that I'm not giving her. Someone else is going to see that I don't ever spend time with her and they're going to try to spend the time with her that I'm not spending with her. And then we have set ourselves up for a failure in our marriage. We've set ourselves up for an affair, for adultery, for a divorce. I've got to do what only I can do. When we started this church um, about eight years ago, we did uh, a lot of things right, and we did a lot of things wrong. And one of the biggest mistakes we made when we started this church is Donnie and I allowed our wives to serve on staff at this church. It was a huge mistake. Now, let me tell you why it was a huge mistake. Not because our wives couldn't do the job. That's what got us in trouble is because we got talented wives that can do all kinds of stuff. And so it was just easy to plug them into positions, let them do things. But here's why it was a problem, is that Donnie's wife, Shelly, can do a lot of different things. She can do children's ministry and preschool ministry, but the thing that she can do that nobody else can do is be Donnie's wife. And my wife, Sherry, is a talented musician and can organize bands and can lead practice and choose worship music and, and train people how to lead worship. But other people can do that. She's the only one that can be my wife. And so we figured that out at some point in the process that we had been dumb, and so we tried to fix that situation. And for my situation, we brought in Chris Roberts who is our worship pastor, our creative arts pastor. He handles all of our computer stuff, and he is extremely talented. And he does an amazing job training these folks how to lead worship and planning services and doing all the things he does, and he's great at that. But you know one thing he is terrible at? He is terrible at being my wife. I cannot emphasize enough how bad of a wife Chris Roberts would be for me. But you know who is awesome at being my wife? Sherry. She's better than anybody else that has ever lived at being my wife. She's the only one that's ever done it, and she's the only one that's ever going to do it. She's my wife. And see, what we learned was is that there's things that, that 
that only one person can do, and we need to let those people do those things, and only you can be a husband to your wife or a wife to your husband. And if you're letting job or another relationship or your kids or anything else get in the way of that, you got to go back to the basics and realize, I'm neglecting my first responsibility. Second thing I think we can learn in this passage about this story is that we need to listen to the wise people God has put around you. Listen to the wise people that God has put around you. Look at verse 3 of the story. David stayed home. He already made the first mistake. He stayed home instead of going to war. He got up, walked around at night, saw a woman taking a bath. And then verse 3, it says this. David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, this is a key moment in this story. In fact, I think this is the turning point of this story. Because at this moment, David has one last chance to not do what he's already got in his mind that he's going to do. When he sends the guy to find out about the woman taking a bath, David knows exactly what he's going to do. He's already thought about it. He's already getting ready for it. And this, you have this key moment where this servant says to David, hey, wait a minute, isn't she already married? See, I believe that, that God put those words in that servant's mouth. I believe that this servant was showing wisdom that David wasn't seeing right then. And that David had an opportunity to listen to the wisdom of this person in his life and turn from the path that he was planning on walking down. David could have said, you know what? She is married. What am I thinking about? Thanks for bringing that to my attention. David had an opportunity to listen to the wisdom of someone in his life and turn from the path that he was planning to go. And you might look at this and say, well, Cliff, he didn't really say that much. He just said, isn't this lady married? Well, you got to remember, this was a servant. You know what David was used to his servant saying? Yes, sir. As you wish. Will do. I'll have her here in 35 seconds. And you can have sex with her. Sir, that's what I'm here for you. To bring women to your house so you can do whatever you want to do. That's what David was used to. But this servant, before he went to get the woman, he stopped just for a moment, just long enough to try to put a different thought into David's mind. And like I said, I believe that that came from God. I believe the Holy Spirit was guiding that guy to say, hey, wait a minute, isn't she married? And David, if he would have listened to that, if he would have taken just a moment, I believe this whole story would have turned out different. And I believe that there are people in your life, that God has put people in your life who are wise, and that he wants you to go to them for advice. He wants you to listen to the advice that they give you. And it will, it, that, by listening to that advice, that could be the difference between destruction and success in your life and in your marriage. If you will listen to the wisdom of the people God's put around you. Now, as you, as you think about that, be careful. Because you also have some stupid people in your life. And you got some people that you don't need to listen to a thing they say. And I'm, teenagers, if you're in here today and you're below the age of 35, no, I'm just kidding. If you're below, if you're below, if you're 18 or younger, 
Your friends are not the people you need to be getting wise advice from. Now, every once in a while, they might give you something good to say, but most of, most of your friends are too stupid to know what they need to tell you to do, all right? It's okay. They'll grow out of it. I remember one time, uh, like I said, I did youth ministry at a, a church here in town for 10 years, and there was a, a kid who had gotten himself into some pretty serious trouble, and so I was talking with him about things, and we are talking about what's going on in his life and trying to help him figure out how to make better decisions. And he starts telling me about something he's going to do. And I said, where in the world did you get that idea from? And he said, well, this friend of mine, he's a, and these were his exact words, I'll never forget. He's a pretty wise dude. This guy, he's a pretty wise dude. He thought, you know, that'd be a good idea. I said, what does this wise dude do? Well, guess what this guy that he was, he was going to advice for, guess what he did for a living? He sold drugs. That's the way this kid met him. He'd bought drugs from him. I said, man, that dude is not a, he's not a wise dude. He's a felon. He, he's going to be in jail before the end of the month. Don't listen to anything he tells you to do. Now, God's put people in your life who are wise. Listen to what they do to tell you to do. But, but those people that are stupid, you know, don't listen to what they tell you to do. But let me tell you, you've got a group of, of wise friends that, that you can go to at any time. And they're found uh, in the Bible. If you own a Bible, if you have a Bible app, if you can go to the library and check out a Bible, you can go online and read the Bible on Google, whatever it is, you have access to the wisdom of all kinds of people. You have access to the wisdom of a guy named Moses. You've got access to the wisdom of a guy named Solomon, of somebody named Jesus, of somebody named Peter and Paul. And you can also learn from the mistakes they make. We can learn from the mistake Daniel makes in 2 Samuel chapter 11. We can learn from the mistakes that Samson made. You can even learn from those people in the Bible that have weird names like Habakkuk and Zephaniah. They've got all kinds of wisdom that they want to tell you about if you will just go to them and ask. If you will begin to read the Bible every day, like, man, Cliff, that didn't make any sense. That's fine. Read it again. Read it again. Continue reading it until one day the light comes on and you're like, ooh, I needed that today. Or I'm going to need that a month from now. I can see what's coming up in my life. And you have access to the wisdom of all kinds of people. And if you will listen to the wisdom of the people God's put around you, whether it be your friends that you have or whether it be the people in the Bible, you will see a change in your life. Um, I was watching the news the other day, and, and there's these wildfires that have been going on out west, and it's kind of an ongoing story, it seems like, every summer that, that you see. And I was watching how they were trying to fight the fires and that kind of thing, and, and uh, they were talking to a guy, and he was talking about how they were creating what they call a fire break. And what a fire break is, is there's a, a place where there's a wildfire moving through an area. They can tell by the wind and stuff basically what direction it's going. They'll take bulldozers and caterpillars and all that kind of stuff and they'll go and they'll cut out a big section of forest and and so that they re remove the trees they remove all the underbrush and the hope is is that when the fire gets to that point there'll be nothing there to fuel it and the fire will go out it will aid in stopping the fire and it's a fire break so they're hoping it'll break off and be done the wise words of people in the bible the wise, wise words of people in your life can serve as a fire break in your life. In this story, when David saw Bathsheba, 
on the roof, he was on fire. Y'all know what I mean. I mean, the fire had started and it was burning hot. And there was one last chance. God put a fire break into that situation to put out that fire. And if he'd have listened to those words, it could have ended, put the fire out and ended the whole situation. And the wise words of the people in the Bible, if you're reading those every single day, you are basically putting up a fire break around your life. And whatever comes along, whatever opportunities you're going to have to turn your back on the things of God, to walk down a path you shouldn't walk, you're going to get to a point where hopefully, as you have that opportunity, a word from the Scripture will come back into your mind. You'll read something from Obadiah. You'll read something from the book of Revelation. You'll read something from the Gospel of John. And the words will come to you and you'll say, I don't need to do what I'm about to do. And it serves as a firebreak. The wisdom of, of the Scripture and the wisdom of people around you can do that. And it could save your marriage. It could save your job. When uh, back on, in May, on May 3rd, um, there was uh, deadly tornadoes that went through part of Oklahoma. And I remember watching that story on television and there was a lot being made then of these three guys who died. Now these three guys were what you call storm chasers. And so everybody else, a tornado's coming and you're jumping under your house or getting in your bathtub or running for shelter. These dudes are getting in their car and they're going to the tornado. Now, on the, the television, especially on the Weather Channel, they were talking about how much of a tragedy it is that these three guys died. And I thought to myself, that's not a tragedy. It was a tragedy, those people who died who were sitting at home minding their own business in Oklahoma when the tornado came through, that was a tragedy. The three storm chasers that died, even though it's sad for their families, and I'm not hard-hearted, I don't think, you know, it's not like I'm glad somebody died, but it wasn't a tragedy, it was a consequence. It was a consequence of their actions. When they chose, instead of running away from a storm, to run to it, and they died, none of us should be surprised. It's like when Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter, died. Somebody said, hey, you won't believe Steve Irwin died, and I said, yeah, I certainly would believe it. Have you ever watched what he does on TV? He should have been dead like 10 years ago. It's a consequence of the actions that they took. In this story, this is a tragic story for Uriah. Uriah is off at battle. He's minding his own business. Some guy abuses his power as king, steals his wife, has him murdered. That's a tragedy. For David, what happens to David is not a tragedy. It's a consequence. Because David put himself in a position when he chose to stay home instead of going off to war, when he chose to ignore the wise words of people around him, he put himself in a position to commit adultery, to commit murder, and then for all the things that happen after that. See, if you, when you go home today, you read chapter 11 and chapter 12, then I hope you'll be excited and you'll want to read more. If you go into chapter 13 and 14 and 15 and 16, you will find out that what happens in David's life after Bathsheba, before Bathsheba, he had some rough times, but God was on his side, and <clears throat> he ended up becoming king, and everything's successful. After Bathsheba, a certain um, series of event events begin to take place in his life. 
He has a son that rapes one of his daughters. He has another son who kills that former son. He has a son who then kicks David out as king and tries to become king himself. He has all kinds of tragedy come onto his house, and it started with the consequences of his sin, what he saw on a rooftop, and what he de- how he decided to act on that woman that he saw on the rooftop. See, you're here today and none of you are planning on anything bad happening to you. None of you are planning here today to ruin somebody else's marriage by having an affair. None of you are planning on going bankrupt. None of us are planning on any of that bad stuff. But those things come into our life and they come and we make small decisions that lead to a big problem. And so as as we think about this story and as we think about all the other stories we've talked about this month, I want, I want to uh, share a, a story, uh, a conversation that I had just yesterday that I think um, just is kind of perfect for what we're talking about. Yesterday I w- was with my oldest daughter, Emily, and we went down to Columbia for a, a meeting about a scholarship that she's getting for school next year, and, and it's a scholarship for people who want to be teachers. And we were sitting at this table, and we're sitting with these other girls who want to be teachers one day, and there was a man there who's a principal of a school up in Oconee County. And he just started talking to these girls as a principal, and he said, let me tell you what I'm looking for when I hire a teacher. And I was sitting there thinking, okay, girls, I hope y'all are paying attention because this is really important stuff. And he said... I'm looking for someone who's confident and humble. And you hear those two things and you're thinking, well, those two things are kind of opposite ends of the spectrum. But he said, he said that I'm looking for someone who comes in and they're confident of what they can do in the classroom, but they're humble enough to know that they don't know it all and they still want to learn and become a better teacher every year. I thought that was great advice. And I started thinking about what we've talked about this month. That's the way we should live our lives. We should walk out of our house every day confident, not in ourselves, but confident in our God. Confident that Jesus has saved me. He's called me to be a certain thing. He's called me to to go a certain direction. And I have confidence in Him. But I'm humble enough to know that if I'm not careful, I can end up exactly like David. If I'm not careful, I can end up in a place that I never intended to be. And so while I'm confident in God, I'm not confident in myself. I'm humble enough to put myself under the authority of God and allow him to make my decisions, allow him to lead me. And if we will live our lives like that, we will avoid adultery. We'll avoid bankruptcy. We'll avoid murder. We'll avoid all of these different things that are terrible. And you're like, Cliff, murder? I would never be involved in murder. None of us plan to. But if we're not careful we can end up in a place we never plan to be. But if we will live our lives confident in the power of God and humble enough to know that we can't do it ourselves, then I think we're going to be in a lot better position than we ever would have before. I'm going to pray for us. And um, I just want to let you know that if you're here today and and, um, you, you can't be confident in God because you don't have a relationship with him. If that's where you are, you're like, Cliff, God to me is some far-off concept. He wants to have a relationship with you so you can be confident in him. So I want to, if that's who you are, I want to just encourage you to please come and talk to me as soon as this service is over, and I'll be right down here. And uh, if you're here today and you are a follower of Jesus, 
Just think through the small decisions you make every day and what they could lead to. Do what only you can do. Listen to the wise words of the people in Scripture and the people God's put around you and live your life based on that. Let's pray. Father God, you are good, you are kind, you are merciful, and we are in desperate need of that mercy. I pray that for myself and for everybody else in this room who follows you, that we would go to work tomorrow, we would go to wherever we're going to be, confident that you're with us and humble enough to know that without your presence, without your help, we have a great chance of just messing up our lives. I pray that you would protect each one of these folks in this room today. Protect them from the attacks that they're going to face. Protect them from the situations that they're going to be in, that, that they could make a decision that would lead them down a path of destruction. And I ask that you would continue to give them wise words through the Scripture, that they would be faithful to read your word, and not only to read it, but to live by it. You are a good God, and it's because of your goodness that we celebrate today. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.